You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Gracious Father in heaven, you're so good to us. We pray the Holy Spirit will be here today. We want to pray for this dear sister's van is broken down. We pray that you will give her a good solution and keep your hand over in the middle of all this heat. And as we work together here today and endeavoring to understand the writings of the Apostle Paul, we pray for a heavenly blessing that the, your presence will be here. We believe that you will be here, not because we deserve it, but because we plead the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I think I want to flash back just a little bit because I had somebody ask me a question about this. So I wanted to make sure if I thought if I left somebody in a little bit of darkness on this, then I might have left somebody else. Uh, so I do appreciate the questions and the feedback. Do you remember when I, when I was talking about the nature of Christ? Remember that? And I was talking about the fact that he got his nature from his heavenly father, his pure nature and he got his human nature from his mother and that this is a great mystery now and and so somebody asked me well how does all of that work and my answer to them was that's the mystery that's what we can't can't fathom now and i say this kindly for this camp that says Jesus did not, when he got his human mother's uh, nature, it had no effect on him at all. It was a pure nature. Uh, it was, it was uh, hurt because of all sin. So physically, he wasn't maybe as big as Adam, but it had no, no uh, tendencies toward evil. So he only has his father's nature. Well, for them, they solve that. You see what I'm saying? And for this group over here that says no, uh, he got everything that his mother had, uh, and he just has to overcome exactly like we do, so to speak. They kind of try to solve that too. The truth is, it's unsolvable. You understand? You cannot explain the mystery. We can explain the truth of the incarnation. We can rejoice in the results of the incarnation and the benefits, but you cannot explain how God and a human being can produce a child that's both God and human in our fallen nature. Because there's nothing in Scripture that would tell you that he did not get his human nature from his mother. So, but this we do know, and somebody was sharing this with me yesterday, and I really appreciated it. We were talking afterwards, and I failed to say this, but it's really, uh, I think, an important point. So people sometimes say, and I, I, went over, I said this, I think, yesterday, but I'm going to go over it and give you another little piece of this that I think is important. So people say, well, if his father was God and his mother was one of us, doesn't he have an advantage over us? That's always the worry. And the answer is yes and no. Don't you like those kind of answers? Yes, in the sense that when you start out in life and I start out in life, he started out different because he had a divine nature. You don't. Neither do I. But the answer is also no. Because when you give your life to Christ and you're born again, the living Christ comes into your heart and your life. Literally. That's not theory. So how did Jesus overcome sin? He overcame it by depending on His Father. How do we overcome sin? By depending on Jesus. Is that, that's not difficult. So, He was born, born again. Does that make it, does that help? He was born, born again. And we're not born again until we're born again by the Spirit of God. We give our life to Christ. Did I lose any of you? Do you have questions? Don't be afraid to ask. I may not have the answer, and if I don't, I'll tell you. 
Yes. I don't know where my, the gentlemen are that have uh, microphones, but they usually have a microphone. Speak up and I'll try to, I'll try to uh, repeat. Is it fair to say that Jesus was born the way Adam was created? The answer to that is no and yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has a huge, distinct disadvantage from Adam because he's got a fallen nature he got from his mother. But he still has the nature, the pure nature that he got from his father. Adam had both a pure human nature and an unspoiled nature because he was created that way. And our, and our friends who are over here who say, well, no, he, you know, he really didn't get any propensities of falling from his mother. Uh, and they, they're a little closer to, I think, the Catholic position of having to have a immaculate conception. But, the, the tr and, I, and I say that kindly, some of these folk are my friends, so I'm not, I don't believe in getting in fights over this kind of stuff. We need to listen and think, but you need to think for yourself and you need to read the scripture. And just because I say it, you shouldn't just take that as carte blanche or some professor says it or some guy with 10 PhDs. And I like people with PhDs. You get my point, though. You need to test everything and think, think about it. For these folk, if Jesus assumes the fallen nature that we have with its tendencies, that makes him a sinner in their, their mind. Now, these people over here say, no, because sin is a choice. So they're more right. They are right, because sin is a transgression of the law. It takes a choice, a willful choice, to make you a sinner. Now, let me explain why that's true. If you're automatically a sinner because of a fallen nature that you've inherited, how can you impute guilt? You cannot impute guilt to robots. Am I right? You can only impute guilt when somebody does something knowingly transgresses a law. Now, I know the world says the ignorance, but we're not talking about the world here. We're talking about the fact that God in His justice does not impute guilt. In fact, Romans chapter 5 makes that clear. Does not impute guilt unless you choose sin. Having said that, this fallen nature is a huge problem. And nobody that's ever inherited it, which means all of us, with the exception of Jesus, has been able to overcome the temptations that come from the flesh, Paul would say, or the carnal nature, or the selfish nature. That's why we have to have a Savior. But the, 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 the carnal nature in and of itself is a temptation, but it's not the sin. And that's why these folk, I think, miss it. What these folk over here miss is that Jesus was born with this beautiful, pure nature he got from his father. They're both right in what they affirm and wrong in what they deny. That makes any sense. Okay, got uh, the mic. Uh, you're going to help me with the mic? Great. Because I, it, they're recording this and it's much easier for people to, to, to hear it. Okay, he's going to come around there so that. And, and let me say that this great mystery, I just accept the results of it and accept the mystery of it. And I enjoy the benefits. Amen? I just enjoy the benefits. My mind, would, nobody's mind is smart enough to comprehend the incarnation, but we can appreciate the fact that it happened. Yes, please. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how Christ did everything that he did. And so that's how we can do it also. That's right. So he was born again when he was born. We're not born again. But he still had a choice. He could have sin and everything would have been ruined for all of us. That's where the great risk was. God sending his only begotten son.
That was a huge risk. Sin, by the way, has a temptation and has a bigger temptation when you have a selfish nature. Okay, I'm sorry. Echoing, you're saying? Okay, hopefully they'll pick that up and able to get that out. Okay, I have a question right over here, a comment. And then you had one. All right. Okay, I, I know this is like very difficult to understand and I won't, I'll be studying this throughout all eternity with everyone we will. else. But um, obviously Jesus has his mother's nature um, and there's some kind of a divine element that we can't fully get our hands on. But in, in thinking, if he did have some kind of spiritual power that we don't, and he went through the same temptations as us, then he would have more temptation than us because he would have to deny his God part and his man part and live fully and only through the faith of his Father in the power empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I mean, am Ellen, I going down a wrong no, road? No, Ellen White actually confirms that. And, and this camp over here, that's what they'll use. They'll say, well, having to deny, you know, the fact of his, his divine powers was a greater temptation. Well, it was a greater temptation. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he clothed himself in humanity he got from his mother. And it was that fallen humanity that he took to the cross and I think Romans chapter 6 is so clear on this, and crucified it. That's why we are crucified with Christ, and, and we die, and then we're resurrected again. Okay, I promised here, and then this lady here has a question. You're going to raise the same point? Okay. Okay, good. Then this uh, lady has a question. Did his divine nature sometimes come through stronger than his human nature? And the reason I ask that is this. He told his disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised on, on the third day. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I, I bring it up. But yet Mrs. White says he couldn't see beyond the portals of the tomb. Mm -hmm. And when I ask, how do you reconcile those two things? I always get a very long, involved answer that doesn't really answer the question. Do you have any light on that? Okay. Let me see if I heard you correctly. So I think what you're asking is the fact that he had this divine nature, this pure nature from his father. Yes, because he could say what is going to happen to him. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised. He, could, he, could, he had the prophetic the gift. Yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mrs. White said he could not see beyond the portals of the tomb. He mm -hmm. didn't know if he was going to remain in that tomb or not, is, is my understanding. Yes. Um, I, hopefully I can answer that simply. <laughs> Uh, we have the prophetic gift, too, in Scripture, and we know what's going to happen with the mark of the beast. Is that right? Most Adventists understand that, but we haven't gotten there yet. We know there's a terrible time of trouble coming, such as we've never seen before, that nobody can even understand. And, you, and Ellen White says you can't even anticipate. You can know about it, but you can't anticipate it. Jesus lived his life by faith. He had no advantage over any of us if, if we are born again. The same Holy Spirit, the same godly power is available to us that was available to him. And he had the prophetic gift. He could see ahead. And he had faith that God would resurrect him. But when he got into the darkness, it was just almost impossible for a human standpoint to see through the portals of the tomb. And that's important because when he gets to Calvary's cross, he's going to die the death, the second death of all sinners. And that's why he says, and I can't even quote it reverently enough, my God... My God, why? Where are you? At that point, he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. At that point, when he died the sinner's death for all of us, he was willing to do it, but he couldn't see how he could come out of that because he had never 
ever been separated from His Father. You think about the lives of two people. Say, just use a husband and wife for an example. And they are close. They can think each other's thoughts practically. And they've never been separated. Then death separates them. That's a terrible thing. But that doesn't even come close. All the best marriages in the world cannot come close to the union that you have between the Father and the Son. At Calvary, that union was broken up. And when God withdraws and hides His face, Christ says why. He cannot see at that point through the portals of the tomb. I don't know if that helps, but may not answer every nuance, but that's the fact of that. What's that? We will all understand it better when we get to heaven. God bless you, too. All right, anything else before we plunge back into Galatians? There's another one right over here, over there to the right. This is a big subject, and we can consume a lot of time on it. And I, uh, but I, I just want to clear up any, and then we'll, we'll plunge back into Galatians. Yes. One of, the, one of the pitfalls that I have heard in the discussions of when we come to accountability, what about as a child, before I come to the age of accountability, I have developed habits of sin that have to be conquered. And it has to be by the new birth, but having those habits it has a stronger pull on me. And so, <clears throat> yes, I can overcome through the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. But my understanding is Elmite says that Christ had to overcome where Adam fell, which is different than where I was. Yeah, and there's a lot of wonderful things here. Listen, the grace of God is powerful, and the Holy Spirit is working even in little children, is He not? So we don't want to cut anything short here, but that's to help us understand this great thing. So back to Galatians. Back to Galatians, uh, and we're going to look, I want to look again at verse 19. I'm sorry, at verse 8, uh, yeah, verse 19. So you have your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? That is a crucial question because you remember yesterday, using this illustration again, you have Abraham's covenant. That's a covenant. You can't change it. It's unchangeable. You have Sinai. Sinai then cannot be something that makes adjustments to this. It's not introducing a new system of salvation. Even though our Jewish um, friends through the centuries there transported this, and they would be very unhappy with me to hear me say this, but I'm going to show you that from the Apostle Paul. They actually turned this system into something like the pagan world turned their system into. But it was never meant for that. So this is not a new covenant, a different covenant. This is the covenant. This is given for a specific reason, and Paul is going to tell us why in just a moment. And then 1,400 years later, you have Christ who confirms and signs the check on this covenant. So God promises to put your faith in the Messiah, I will save you, but it's an unsigned check until Jesus signs it on Calvary's cross. Still with me? Now listen, let's come back to Sinai because this is a big deal. And it's still a big deal in Christianity. And I, again, I say this um, with sympathy. There are very earnest-hearted people. There's, there's some movements even in Adventism where people feel, and I've got some close people that I love, um, feel like they just got to keep some of those ceremonial Sabbaths and so forth and so on. And 
and it's you know there's there's teachers that would just be really upset with me if they heard what I'm going to say in the seminar about some of that but I want the truth and the truth starts with understanding Sinai if you don't understand the purpose of Sinai you're going to get it confused with this and you'll get it confused with this and you'll look at the apostasy of the Christian church because all we have, and the great dark age apostasy, it's the same identical apostasy in a different robe as what the Jewish leadership did by the time of Christ with their own sanctuary, with Mount Sinai and the sanctuary system. Follow me? Okay? Now listen to this text. Uh, it says, verse 19, for what purpose does the law serve? Crucial question. It was added because of transgressions. It was not added to fix this, because that doesn't need fixing. It was added because, as Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone, what? So Israel and the descendants of Abraham are going to tend to stray. So God brings Sinai in to keep them in the straight and narrow. Now notice the next word in the text. What's the next word? Some versions will say until. I actually like that better. Mine says till. Verse 19. Till the seed should come. Who's the seed and when does he come? It's the Messiah right here. So... Sinai is given because of transgressions, because people stray to keep them in the straight and narrow, if you please, until the Messiah should show up. That is foundational. And it also tells you that it's prophetic, tells you that the whole thing is prophetic, but that's the function of Sinai. If you, if you don't get that right... Um, you'll be off in a lot of ways, including many of our evangelical friends as well. So let's, let's go on. Verse 19, It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed by angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now, it seems like there's a problem there. So if the human race has been separated from God because of its sinfulness and God stands as a judge and God, not that he doesn't love them, but he can't not let them. He's got to do something. He's either got to eliminate them because they are a threat to the universe. And that's what sin is. By the way, most people today do not understand the seriousness of sin. This is serious, bad stuff. Selfishness is bad stuff. I know we, we live in it, immersed in it, and we tend to get used to it, but we don't understand the horrible threat it is to all of us. Get back to my, my train of thought here. That's what happens when you get older. <laughs> I've got some fellow travelers out here. So um, I, was on, I was on a good roll there, and then I, I lost it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so God has this problem. How is he going, he's judge, how is he going to, how is he going to get a mediator between these people who have offended the law of heaven and the universe? How is he going to get somebody to bring us all back together again? If, you, if there's a dispute between me and you, and I look at you and I say, okay, fine, I'll mediate the dispute, what would you say? No, thank you. No, thank you. So where's God going to get a mediator? And by the way, He's going to say the same thing to the human race. Am I right? Okay, God will be the mediator. No, thank you. He, he needs a mediator. We need a mediator. Where do you find a mediator? This is why the Trinity is so important. God is one, and God is... Three, it's just like the incarnation. Don't try to don't try to plunge in to try to explain it. Just accept it as a fact because it is a fact. Let me show you why it's a fact. You have your Bibles. 
uh, leave your finger in Galatians, and if you don't mind, flip back to um, John, Gospel of John, verse uh, chapter fourteen, and I want to look at verse sixteen. Let's see if you can count. I know you can. Chapter fourteen, verse sixteen. And I now, how many persons do I have in those? And that's two words. One. And I will pray the Father. Now, how many do I have? And they can't be the separate same one. Am I correct? And He, still talking about the Father, so I still have two. Will give you another helper. The another, now how many do I have? And the another can't be the first two. Doesn't make any sense. Um, and I will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And then it calls him later the spirit of truth. I'm not going to get into all that. I'm simply saying from the words of Jesus himself, he says, I will pray the Father who's separate from me and he will send you another, that's not me, and it's always not the Father because the Father's doing the sending. Send another helper, that makes three. So among the Godhead now, God can find, go back to Galatians, God can find a mediator if he becomes human. And so when Jesus becomes human, he is now both human and divine at the same point. And now He is different. He's different from the Godhead, but the same. He's different from us, but the same. And He stands between us. And now He's going to mediate this. Now He's going to mediate it at tremendous cost to Himself, but He's going to mediate it and bring us back together again. Isn't this Jesus wonderful? I, I mean, we just you just have to love this Jesus and God the Father who and the Holy Spirit who do this for all of us. So, ver, verse nineteen and twenty, uh, verse twenty one. Now Paul goes back again to Mount Sinai, and he says, "Is the law then against the promises of God?" What's the answer? Certainly not. I love the old King James at this point. God forbid. <laughs> Is the promises, Abraham's promises, covenant. Is the law given at Sinai against the promises of God? And the answer is, hello, evangelical world. These are not in fighting with each other. They're not in conflict with each other. They're not mad at one another. What has happened in the evangelical world and much of the Protestant world is they don't understand that one sentence. They don't understand that there's no conflict between these two because they have manufactured a content by misunderstanding and misreading the Apostle Paul and not letting the clear statements be clearly understood. You always measure the obscure by the clear. You're right. All right, let's, let's go on. So the law and the promise. So this is a new thought for a lot of people, even Adventists. I mean, I have listened to, and I say this kindly, I have listened to Adventist expositors, and they just make this big conflict between law and There's no conflict between law and grace. The only conflict is the fallen human apostasy that wants to make the law into something that it was never meant to be. Follow me? Still with me? Okay, here we go. Verse 21. For if there had been a law that could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. That statement alone tells us why you can only be saved by faith alone in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is a powerful statement. If you were God the Father, 
and you are close to your only begotten Son, do you want to send Him to earth? Did Abraham want to go to Mount Moriah? Did Abraham enjoy getting that vision from heaven and say, take now your son, your only son. By the way, he had other sons, but we know what that meant. And offer him as a sacrifice? No. God doesn't want to do that. In fact, Ellen White gives us a very interesting insight into this, and I should be able to quote that, but I can't quote the reference. But when this council in heaven and the son went into the father, to affirm what they had already decided to do, should sin enter. First two times, I'm paraphrasing, the father said no. You think Abraham might have said no a couple of times to God that night? And then in the embrace that saves us, God says yes. Father says yes. Three times. So if God could have said, look... Son, universe, they're all guilty. They've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. They've all broken everything. But if I, I've got a special law here, and if they will obey that law, I will make a new law. If they will obey that law, I'll let them in. I'll justify them. Now, I know it sounds a little bit heretical to say this, but there are some things that God cannot do, cannot change Himself. Hallelujah. And he's going to be true to himself. He cannot make any law that you and I can obey that will justify us, clear our guilt, and change our lives. So that's why this system of reward, if you be good, I'll give you a reward and I'll get you in heaven, that's why it will never, ever work. I mean, if you showed up at the court and you'd broken the law, and you just said to the judge, look, judge, I know I messed up, but, uh, you know, uh, tell me which law you want me to keep, and I'll keep it real good, and because I'll keep it real good, you let me off of this one. Try that sometime and see if it works. No, don't try it. If you've broken the law, you can't change history. None of us can change our past. Sometimes we'd like to. I'd like to go back and change some stuff that I wish I hadn't done. Anybody? No, you don't raise your hands. I know your answer already. I can't change it. I'm guilty. And there's only one way that God can fix that. All right. Let's go on. Verse 21. Uh, Verse 22. But Scripture has confined all under sin. In other words, the Scripture tells the truth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all guilty. Every time you ride by a graveyard, that's that evidence that we're all guilty. But the Scriptures confine everyone under all under sin. Verse, it goes on, verse 22, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Question and answer. What is the promise? Think. Promise of everlasting life, justification given by that back there. What happened? And the second thing is, second thing is, how do you get it? According to that verse. By faith. Those who, by the word, the word believe and the word faith in the Greek are the same word. So the promise, we get the promise when we believe in Jesus. Pretty simple. It's wonderfully simple. But we want to understand everything behind it. Okay, verse 23. But before faith came, question and answer, what is the faith? Now, I'd give you a hint. I should just give you a hint. Who is the faith? There's some people, our dispensationalist friends, some of them will say, well, you know, there wasn't any faith before Jesus came. That's not what that text is saying. That text is a direct reference to the text just before it. And the text just before it says that you get the promise by faith in whom? 
Now it just personifies the faith. So in this text, it says before faith came, before faith in Jesus came, before faith in Christ. So it's talking about Christ here, before Christ came. Because they didn't know his name until he showed up. Before faith in Christ came, we can put it that way. We were kept under guard. Oh, more light on the, on the law. We were kept under guard. We were saved by the... No, we weren't saved by the law. We were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith, for Christ, who would afterward be revealed. All three of these are working together. So here's the promise that we're all looking forward to. We're going to be cleansed of our guilt. We're going to have the promise of everlasting life because of our faith in the Messiah. But the Messiah has not shown up. And so in the meantime, God gives Sinai, brings Israel out and gives them Sinai. And he says, Sinai will keep you under guard. Sinai will keep you in the straight and narrow until this Messiah, wonderful Messiah, shows up, until faith the living Christ shows up. Isn't that good news? So all three of these are working together. They're not, they're not at war with one another. Um, I had a thought. Yeah, I'll just say it. In essence, the heavenly sanctuary is doing the same thing. Jesus is coming again in power and great glory. If you put your faith in Jesus as our heavenly high priest in the context of the heavenly sanctuary, you will be kept until Jesus shows up. But it's no longer an earthly sanctuary that guards you now. It's now the heavenly sanctuary. You're starting to catch on. This is why this is a big deal. And this is why the heavenly sanctuary is such a big deal. Okay, let me, um, let me go back here. So, um, was kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith to be revealed. Verse 24, and this is a big, there's a big discussion about some of this. Verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ to be justified by faith. Now that word you heard, it was, uh, it was the Roman slave that kept the Roman boys in line. And he said, you go to school, you come home, and he basically was a surrogate parent, what he was in, in essence. And so he made them toe the line, made sure that what dead mom wanted them to do, they did. Let me give you a better illustration, I think, in our context today. Replace the word tutor with the word babysitter. How many of you ever hired babysitters for your kids? You know what I'm talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. When you have a babysitter that takes care of your kids, and you're paying them to do that, they're assigned to do that, who makes the rules for the kids while you're gone? Oh, yeah, exactly right. The babysitter doesn't make the rules. The parents make the rules. Because the reason you hired them was to carry out your will for your children. Am I right? I want them to go to bed at... That's your job. Make sure they're in bed. Uh, what do the kids do with the babysitters? Right, Mom and Dad aren't here right now. Could I please go to bed at half hour later? They're not coming back anyway until... I know Mom and Dad doesn't want us to do this, but would you please... And the babysitter's job is to... No. You're going to bed on time. No. You cannot do that. Yes, you can do that because mom and dad said you could do it. But no, you cannot do that if mom and dad didn't. The babysitter is the stand-in. The babysitter takes the orders from the parent. That's what Sinai is. Sinai has taken the orders from the parent, using the illustration, until the real parent can show up. Now let me ask you this, when the parents come back home, pay the babysitter and dismiss the babysitter, is the babysitter's job still continuing or is it over? It's over. Now let me ask you another question. 
Does that mean that the parents' rules have changed? No. That's right. If, if the parents are good parents, the same rules they use for the children are the same rules they use with the babysitter. And when the babysitter is gone, the same rules are still there. Does that make sense? Because the parents are trying to raise good kids. That's the goal, by the grace of God. All right. Sometimes they don't always turn out like we'd like for them to, but that's the job that we have. All right, so this, this whole thing of, of a babysitter, and it's, um, it, it's a crucial, crucial thing. Now, let me just, let me, I'm going to need to skip down here. I want to, I want to share something. I've got my notes here um, really quick, if I can find it here. Okay. All you have to do is touch one of these things in the wrong place. I'll just go wing it here in a second. If I can find chapter 3. All right. Now, I'm going to read this little next part. It's not very long, but I want to read it. Because what you have here when Jesus shows up, and the reason the Jewish people reject Jesus... And the reason the early Christian church struggled with circumcision is because the children clung to the neck of the babysitter. You following me? Because they had gone into apostasy and misunderstood the role of this, they had put it in their mind that they could be saved if they just kept all these regulations and rituals and that that would save them. And because they, they twisted this into something that God never meant for it to be, when the real parent shows up, what do they do? They cling to the neck of the babysitter. That, that is Paul is going to triple and double down on this in chapter 4 because he really wants us to get it. We'll get more into we get into Hagar and Sarah. But much of the world doesn't get it. Much of the Christian world sometimes doesn't get it because this never was to function as the parent. But when they made it into the parent and they clung to it like a parent, when Jesus shows up, he said in one place, he says, you know, if somebody comes in their own name, in other words, somebody that appeals to your selfish nature, you'll, you'll just latch right on to them. I'm paraphrasing. But when I come and I say, I came in my Father's name, you reject me. You want to murder me. Israel has gotten messed up mentally. So I want to read this little bit. The misguided attachment to the, ba the babysitter, that's Sinai, had become so established that even the early Christian church had a major struggle giving it up. And that's why you read what you read in the New Testament. Its emotional ties misled many Jewish Christians to become confused about the very essence of the gospel. That's why Paul writes Galatians. That's why he writes Romans. He's trying to make sure that he detaches us from the babysitter, so that we can be attached to the real parent. By the way, is there any hope for a child with the babysitter? Does a child have a future with the babysitter? There's no future for the child with the babysitter. The future for the child lies with the uh, parents. For generations, the Jewish nation had largely lost sight of the babysitter's proper role. Now, in desperation, these Jewish Christians tried to cling to the babysitter and to Jesus at the same time. The Christians, now the Jewish, they rejected Jesus and everything. But the Christians who became convicted that Jesus was the Messiah, they accepted Him as the Messiah, but instead of clinging to Christ Alone, 
they try to cling to Christ and still cling to the babysitter. Can you see the picture? Here's the babysitter, here's Jesus, and here are some of these Jewish Christians. They got one arm around the babysitter, and they got one arm around the neck of Jesus, and they said, can't let you. And Jesus is going that way. Babysitter's not going that way. And Paul is saying to them, I know it's emotionally hard for you, but let go of the babysitter because it's the only hope you have. That's why he's so emphatic in Galatians to the Galatians and to the Judeans. Let go. You must cling to Christ alone. That is not, by the way, a repudiation of anything that is taught at Sinai. Because Jesus is the one who put the babysitter in place in the first place. He's the one that gave the rules. He's the one that gave the rituals. He's the one that gave all of those. He's the one that wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on Mount Sinai. This doesn't change the teachings. It doesn't change God's moral purposes and His moral laws. No. But it does change where you put your faith. That's the bottom line. Still with me? Okay. Let me just a, a little bit more here. By trusting the Judaizers, the Galatians were in spiritual danger. If they embraced the Jewish position of putting one's faith in, quote, the works of the law, they could not be justified by Christ alone. As a result, they were about to trade the pure gospel of Jesus for the Jewish babysitter. A choice that had eternal consequences. In the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we find, and I want to say this clearly, in the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into the heavenly sanctuary, we find the full and complete fulfillment of Mount Sinai sanctuary laws and rituals. Don't ever lose that. Was this prophetic? Yes, it was prophetic. Was the sacrificial lamb prophetic? When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's sanctuary language. That takes away the sin of the world. All this is prophetic, and it's all carried into effect, not done away with. Now, if I, if I do this again, I'm watching, i got nine minutes, okay. How many of you have used this text with friends and people say, well, I don't have to keep that old law, you know. And then you quote to them Jesus' words out of Matthew chapter 5. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, fulfill cannot mean destroy. But let me share something else. I missed this. But I finally got it. When Jesus says, that not one dot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law. He's not talking merely about the Ten Commandments. The word law is the whole thing. I'll get, get more into that tomorrow. We'll get more into it. And that's why I said Jesus carries it all into effect. The reason you don't sacrifice a lamb is because you have Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's ceremonial. You need the ceremonial law. You just don't need the symbols. Jesus is the ceremonial law. By the way, He's carrying that into effect right now in the heavenly sanctuary. The ceremonial law is how we are reconciled once again and put in harmony with the moral law. You must never separate. They are separate, but they're not separate. They're uniquely different, but they both operate together for our salvation. 
And our evangelical friends miss that. They, they, they don't understand, and that's why as Adventists we should be proclaiming this from the housetops. We have, as Paul says in Hebrews, we have a high priest. The main point is the main point. We have a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary carrying all of this into effect. When you give your life to Christ and you find forgiveness and peace and relief from guilt, that's a ceremonial law being carried out by Christ Himself. So none of this is done away with. It's just fulfilled. That makes sense? That, I, I don't need... I'll get into the ceremonial Sabbaths. We, when we get in chapter 4, we're going to have a good time on the ceremonial Sabbath. I don't keep them. And I say that sweet kindness. I don't need to. Because I have a Savior who's already carried it into effect. And to do so would deny that He did. Follow me? I, I am not going to ever, by the grace of God, deny that Jesus took all of this and fulfilled it. And, and it has a practical application to your life and to my life. And, and we'll, yeah, now, some, some will ask, well, let me see if I can finish this. Yeah, let me do this. In the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we find the full and complete fulfillment of Mount Sinai's sanctuary laws and rituals, all of them. In Christ, all the moral and redemptive truth and power taught by Sinai's symbols became a reality. This was symbolic. This is the reality of this and the fulfillment of that. In Christ, all moral and redemptive truth and power taught by Sinai's symbols symbols become a reality. That is why Christians have their allegiance to Christ in the heavenly sanctuary and not to earthly temples or priests. I love our pastors, but they're not priests. We are priesthood of believers. And in my, in my library, I have a Baltimore cate catechism, and there are some things here that sometimes the Roman Catholics get better than some of our Protestant friends. But I'll show you the difference. It, they have an illustration. They have Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary as the high priest in the picture. And then underneath him, they have, and there are many precious Roman Catholic priests, they have a Roman Catholic priest. And then under the Roman Catholic priest, they have the member in the pew. What's wrong with that picture? You don't need but two pictures. Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, and underneath Him, the member in the pew. Yeah. Of course, we kind of think sometimes like that. We think our, we have to have a pastor, you know, that his prayers are better than the prayers of the elder. Well, maybe in some cases they are, but not because he's invested with ordination. And I'll get off on a tangent. The reason we're not finishing the work is because we pay our tithe to the conference and we think they owe us a pastor instead of using that money to open up work in new places. Your churches can be run. If you run them by the church manual and your heart is right, you can run those churches. Okay, I quit preaching going to meddling, I know, but I haven't really. If you want to look at the New Testament model, just look at the New Testament model and see what Jesus has done. What we're running today is a Catholic model, Protestant model. Give me my priest so he can pray for me if I get in trouble. Well, God bless him. We need our pastors. Don't get me wrong. We need all, all we can get and more. But it's where you assign them and what they do. And the problem is two things. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble here. I should go on and get out of here. Talk to me afterwards. Some will ask, were the Ten Commandments on stone, including 
and the types and symbols. I'm going to get a lot more into this later. It worries people. By the way, that was the big deal in 1888. I'm going to get into that. You had two groups of people, all of them good. And they were saying, but what about the Ten Commandments? And some of these people on the other side didn't get some stuff either. They did not get clearly this Christ in you, the hope of glory. They did not get clearly the heavenly sanctuary. I'm talking about the guys that got partially right. Some will ask, were the Ten Commandments on stone including the types and symbols of the earthly sanctuary? In Hebrews 8.5, Paul says the earthly sanctuary served as the copy and shadow of the heavenly. In the book of Revelation, John is shown the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Ten Commandments in heaven. The Ten Commandments on stone were not a shadow such as the sacrificial lamb. They were a copy of the one made in heaven. So I had an evangelical one time ask me, he said, oh, you know, that, that's Ten Commandments, they've just been done right with. I said, okay, let's just, take, let's just take your, at face value, for sake of argument, let's just take your statement. It's true. And then I took him to Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, where the Ark of the Covenant is open in heaven. You cannot deny that that Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant, and the Covenant is the Ten Commandments. You can show that clearly from Scripture. I said, so tell me, what are you going to do with the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, of which the ones on earth were a copy? Silence. That's the Adventist message in the end of time to our evangelical and our Protestant friends, our Roman Catholic friends, and the whole world. There is Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. It's a real sanctuary. He, he ministers for us there in front of the Ark of the Covenant that contains the Ten Commandments because John saw it in heaven. So the question to you, to the whole world, is what are you going to do with the Savior who's given His life for you, who's redeemed you, who's told you to put your faith in Him and He would forgive your sins and bring you back into harmony with His law. What are you going to say to Him if you deny that harmony that got you into trouble in the first place? Still with me? That's why we're Seventh-day Adventists. You can't, you can't play around with God's Ten Commandments. Let me go back a little more. The earthly sanctuary was a great babysitter i got two minutes. But now we have the real parent. Yet make no mistake, the change from the earthly to the heavenly sanctuary does not change one iota of the truths or principles taught by both the ceremonial and the moral law. Their truthfulness is just as true today as when it was given at Sinai. But the practice of the symbolic rituals and the use of the emblematic uh, furniture that are emblems are no longer needed. Why would you need them? If I have the real sanctuary in heaven with the real high priest, why do I need the earthly? I don't. We don't sacrifice lambs for our guilt or sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Gold containing the Ten Commandments written on stone. No. We go by faith to the heavenly high priest and accept his sprinkled blood on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Testimony in heaven. From the real priest and the real sanctuary, our sins are forgiven. And we need to say that to the world. The promise and the sanctuary meet Jesus at the cross. In Christ they were completed. Each had a work that was uniquely different. Yes, they were all working on the same team for our salvation. They, are not, they were not divided or at war with one another, nor did they contradict each other. They existed to complement each other. And the loving kindness of God was responsible for their existence. If you trust both Sinai and the cross and the promise, and the right order for the right reasons they will lead you to embrace and trust Christ Jesus alone for your salvation. Oh, I guess I'm out of time.
that's a good place to stop. We're going to really get more into this. This is really going to get fascinating. It's, it's already fascinating to me. God bless you for coming. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father in heaven, you're so kind. As we close this, may we ever be determined that we will never cling to the neck of a babysitter, any babysitter, but cling to the neck of Christ, who alone is our future. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.